welcome back. You're listening to Refocus with Christina and Barbara. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of this community driven by purpose. And thank you for constantly letting us know what Refocus is doing for you and how these conversations are impacting your everyday life. Keep the comments coming because we love, 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 love to hear from you guys. And we have been so privileged to interview such amazing people these past few weeks. The conversations that have come up have been refreshing. And personally, they've made me rethink in a variety of areas in my life. And today will be no exception. I'm eager to introduce our guest because he will blow you away. And he's a public speaking and presentation skills coach who has helped hundreds of professionals present with clarity and confidence. He's a lead facilitator at Leadership Link, ex-professor of communication at Boston University, and pastor of Mountain Hope Church in Massachusetts. I'm honored to introduce you, Brian Krogh. Thank you for making the time to make this happen, Brian. Welcome to Refocus. Yeah, thank you so much for having me here, Barbara and Christina. I'm glad to be here. So I have to be honest, a real moment of honesty. For the moment I stepped into your college course, uh, which was professional presentation at, at, at BU, I knew those few hours a week I had to listen to you, instruct would be valuable for the rest of my life. And every time without fail, I left overwhelmingly motivated and inspired by not only what you teach, but the passion that you do it with. And it was evident to me that the work you're doing isn't done out of habit, but out of love. And I admire that as much, so much, especially from a college professor at the time, because you really sticked out from the rest throughout <laughs> my four years there. So I can't wait for us to jump in because you're someone who truly cares for people around him. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Barbara. And I'm glad you feel that way because our class was three hours long. One thing I love about that class is because everyone in the class gets a chance to present six or seven times throughout the semester. By the end of the semester, we know each other so well. So it really becomes like a community of people and not just an academic environment, even though that's what it is. So I'm glad you felt that way, uh, Barbara. That means a lot to me because that's certainly what I tried to bring to the classroom. I know that not everyone loves public speaking as much as I do. <laughs> uh, in fact, a lot of people really don't like it. And so if I can create safe environments for people to grow and learn, that's a, that's a real benefit, I, I think, to everybody. So thank you for sharing that, that that's the way you felt. That means a lot. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. The, the first compelling question that we have that we'd love to hear your thoughts on is why, why public speaking? It's a good question. And I, I don't know that I have the, the entire answer. Other than that, um, there was a point where, where I hated getting up in front of people. I remember sitting in class. Now I'm in a position where I'm the one in the front of the room asking people to get up and talk. But I remember sitting in class, whether it be in middle school or high school or college, and just praying that no one called on me or asking that or hoping that there wasn't a presentation involved in in whatever we were doing. And honestly, for me, what broke me out of that was being involved in theater in high school. I got involved in, in theater and got up on stage. And when I could, I found when I could learn lines that someone else had written, and then be a part of a group of people performing them, that that helped take away some of that, that fear of being on stage. And once I got over the fear of being on stage, I really began to enjoy learning how to communicate effectively. And once I figured out that, that it was rare for someone to actually enjoy doing this, I, I found that I could help other people who, who 
don't enjoy public speaking or who struggle with being clear in their communication. And I've, I've found out this is a, as, as short as I can make the story. I found out in the last couple of years, I've done a lot of public speaking myself, a lot of lecturing, a lot of preaching, a lot of teaching. And I found out over the last couple of years that I enjoy just as much being behind the scenes, helping someone else succeed on stage as I do being on stage myself and and speaking. So I, I don't know if that answers your whole question, Christina, but that's that's a little bit of the journey. I, I'm, I've gone from from sweaty palms and and not wanting to be up in front at all to to really learning to enjoy that moment and value it. So do you still get nervous right before you go on stage? Because for me, the weight is the worst, right? When I when I'm on the stage or I'm, when I'm making the presentation, after a few moments, I find my groove and I'm okay. But beforehand, the butterflies and the weight is, is just it's unbearable. So do you still feel that before you're about to give a big presentation? <laughs> well, I think I think that I am concerned when people don't get nervous when it's their turn to speak. If you if you're honest about the situation that you're facing. Nerves are going to be a part of that. And it's all about what you do with those nerves. I don't think there's, I think there's very few people out there who do not get nervous before they get up and speak or get up and do really anything in front of people. I think if we talk to professional athletes who have done the same thing since they were a child and now they're an adult getting in front of tens of thousands of people, the nerves are still there. The question is not, do they experience the nerves? The question is, what do they do with them when when they happen? I, one thing that I find comforting is to look at all the people who who admit to still being very nervous before they got on stage. So John Lennon is a famous example. Uh, the the story goes that there wasn't a, a performance where John Lin, Lennon didn't throw up backstage because he was so nervous. And you think about all the things the Beatles did. Uh, and Steve Jobs, there's a lot about how nervous Steve Jobs would get before he'd step out on the stage. I actually think nerves are a natural reaction to the reality of what's about to happen. You're about to stand up in front of a group of people, even if that's two or three or 20,000, and try to communicate an idea or a principle in a, in a world where it's really difficult to get people to listen. And so nerves are a natural part of that. It's all about what you do with them, not whether or not you experience them. So I would encourage people, don't feel defeated because you feel nervous. That's actually a good natural reaction to, to what's about to happen. I think one of the biggest challenges that's against us when we communicate, and I would say this too with, with your podcast or anytime we try to go out and communicate with people, is we live in a world where there is no shortage of voices available for people to listen to, right? Uh, there is a seemingly infinite amount of voices. It used to be only a few people got to speak. And they were the people that had power and position and authority. Now everyone gets to speak. And I don't think any of us would trade that. We, we love living. I, I enjoy living in a world where everyone has a platform to get their ideas and their thoughts out there. Now, the challenge is every time I stand up in front of a group of people, I am competing with the millions of voices that they could be listening to otherwise. And even in a business situation, I'm still competing because everyone can, if they're bored, slide out their phone or open up their laptop and go to the other voices. And so the question I ask is, how is it that we can possibly be heard and remembered 
in a world where everyone is speaking and no one seems to have time to listen? Like, how is that even possible in today's world? Some people can break through and do it really well. But the vast majority of us, uh, we find ourselves being ignored and forgotten <laughs> rather than heard and remembered. And so what is it that, that some people have? What have they figured out? So that in a world where everyone is speaking and, and no one seems to have time to listen, their voices are the ones we hear and remember. They're the ones that can break through and overcome that gap. That's the, to me, that's the big question for our day and age when it comes to effective communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it makes me think of, of the people that I look up to in terms of public speakers or, or, you know, influencers, if you dare to say it, that, that are really convey a message online of you not only identify when I listen to someone, you not only identify to their message, to what they're saying, but also to who they are, right? Does their identity match up with what they're preaching? And I think all those factors also come in when communicating effectively. It's not what you're saying, but also what's behind it. Who are you? Are you like preaching what you're saying? Are you maybe like, how are you dressed when you're giving that presentation? And how are you communicating with the audience? Not only through words, but like with your body posture, et cetera, et cetera. So it's super interesting. What, and what is one goal that you have when helping others in their public speaking abilities? So let me ask you a question, uh, Barbara or, or Christina. Who, why do you, why do you choose to listen to to certain people? If you think about the people that you like to listen to, why do you think it is that that you choose to listen to those people? I heard you say earlier, Barbara. You said authenticity. It sounded like you were saying people who appear authentic. Not they're not just saying something, but but you really feel like they're being honest with who they are and what they believe. And, the, and they, they communicate that, I heard you say, through not only what they say, but how they dress and how they present themselves. Are there other things that you think about when, when you think, okay, these are the voices I like to listen to? What, why is it those voices out of all the other voices you could, you could choose? Any thoughts on that? We unfortunately live in a world where a lot of times people have an angle. People are trying to sell you something whether it be tangible or intangible, when I can sense that I'll be able to gain more from what they're saying than they will be able to gain, then I'll readily tune in. And also relatability. I think somebody can be authentic and they can be uh, genuine and they can be vulnerable in the conversation, but it's not as impactful as it would be if that person is also relatable, as that person understands um, my story and my perspective. Yeah, that's it. So the authenticity, authenticity, I'm sorry, but also I heard you say the relatability, Christina, definitely. Barbara, anything else to add there? What else for you when you listen to voices? What, what, what do you, how do you choose who you listen to? Um, the content is, of course, super important because I'll also contradict myself a little bit from what I said is that a lot of times, and I'm also a victim of this, is that you, we see a person that we look up to and it's like only for their looks or their audience. So we say, oh, let me listen to them. And just because everybody else is listening, they'll have my attention because they already have the audience and the attraction, et cetera. But is their message valuable? Is it is it bringing something that is attributing to my life and that is worth it? So I think also as crazy as that is, I think also the content we either go overrated or underrated. So it's also very important. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I hope to help people with and, and try to 
give give to people is the, a lot of the pressure that we feel when we get up on stage to present is pressure that we feel to be impressive that i have to i have to impress this group of people that they are judging me my name is on the slide uh the the person hosting this event or hosting the meeting just called me up they clicked on our podcast whatever the case, they they read my blog it is my job to impress these people so that they look at me and they say wow this person is such a great person that uh, that i just can't help but but pay attention to everything they're going to say. And now the the weight of being impressive is a difficult weight to bear. So I have to, that means I have to be absolutely perfect in my diction and in my movement and in my dress and in my content. And I also feel this pressure now to tell you everything that I know about everything or everything I know about this topic because I need to find something that's going to impress you. Well, the problem with being impressive is that we're not looking for people who are impressive. I think, or, or we're not looking for people who, who exude being impressive. And I didn't hear, I didn't hear you say, either one of you say anything along those, those lines. Like I, I love the person that can just get up on stage and, and just blow me away with how much they know and, and, and how good they look. We're looking for something different. We choose our, our, the voices we listen to, I would suggest, by whether or not they're helpful. We have, to, we have to weed out voices all the time. We can't listen to everybody. It's impossible. There's way too many voices. And think about all you hear and forget in a day. All, the, all that comes in on TV, all that comes in on social media, all that comes in on Netflix, all that comes in through reading, how much you hear and forget. But then there's some things you remember. And the things that we remember are the things that are truly helpful to us. That's what we choose to listen to. I'll give you a quick example. A couple of weeks ago, my wife went to turn on the hot water in our house and nothing came out. Just all of a sudden, nothing. We'd used it earlier that day. Hot water turned on uh, that you open up the, the valve, the spigot there, nothing. Cold water, plenty of cold water, zero hot water. Well, what did I do? I, it was nine o'clock at night. The, it was tough to get a plumber at nine o'clock at night and we needed hot water. So I went down to the garage and I looked at our hot water heater, which I know zero about. And all of a sudden I started go, I went to YouTube and sure enough, sitting on YouTube for years were all these videos about my particular hot water heater, where the person is going through how to fix the exact problem that I have. Now, I am captivated by these 45-minute YouTube videos in that moment, but I would never listen to those YouTube videos any other time. The only reason I listened is because they were addressing the problem I was facing in a way that was helpful to me. And the videos were not impressive. The person doing it was not a public speaker. They were not an influencer. They were just trying to be helpful. And I think that, the, that what I can help give people is to is to ease the weight of trying to be impressive because what your coworkers are looking for what your classmates are looking for what your audience is looking for is something that is helpful to them and addresses a problem that they're facing so now i get up on stage and it's not about me being impressive and letting and telling everybody everything i know it's about me 
being able to listen to the audience beforehand or think through the audience beforehand and say, okay, what do I know? And what problems are they facing? What challenges do they face? And, and where do those two things cross? And now all I have to do is go on stage and be helpful and say to the audience and, and, and interact with the audience, say, hey, this is a problem I know you're having. This is a challenge I see you having. And I'm here today with some information that I think will be helpful to you. And if you can find that space, if you can find where your content crosses the challenges of your audience, people will always listen. And the, the weight of being helpful to me is so much lighter than the weight of trying to be impressive. And so if this is a, I know this is a long answer, but if I can give that to people I'm working with, it is amazing to see how they come back after running a meeting where they focused on being helpful and not just downloading all the content they know into the brains of the people in the meeting. How, how amazed they are, not only how much easier it was to speak, how much confidence they gained, but then also the responses after that meeting or after that presentation, how, much, how people were thanking them, how people were asking more questions because the focus was not on them. The focus was on their audience and what the audience was facing. And all they were there to do was to try and be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I think just that that same message is so relevant to just our century in general today that it's that pressure to be impressive as a person, no matter if you want to attract people's attention or not. Just like if you're coming into a new school and you are meeting new people, you want to be impressive. You want the best face of yourself and your best uh, part of yourself to be exposed. The rest, you, social media, you put the good stuff out there. You don't put the bad stuff out there, you know, so it's a pressure to be the perfect version of yourself that the rest of, 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 of you, what makes you, um, is disregarded. Yeah. And I, I think if we, if you pay attention to, if we pay attention to the people that, that we choose to listen to, not the people that we used, I think there's this group of people we use as a culture to, to escape and pass time. So I would, I would put like, the Kardashians in that, in that category, like that's an escape, right? That's the, but that's helpful in its own way. Like how do we escape from, from life for a little bit? Well, we, we, we have these guilty pleasures or whatever that take us away. I, I'm, and so that gets a huge audience, but that's helpful in a different way that helps people, people just uh, not pay attention to regular life for a while. But if, but if we're going to, there's all sorts of people out there trying to be impressive and I would say something like, why did we, why did so many of us listen to Steve Jobs when he spoke? He was imp- obviously impressive. Yes. But there were, there's a lot of other billionaires out there who are speaking and we don't listen to them. Uh, we don't, we don't listen to them in the same way. I'll, no, very few of us listen to um, Bill Gates when he was CEO of Microsoft, unless we were in the computer in- industry. We didn't do it the same way we listened to Steve Jobs. But now that Bill Gates is giving TED Talks around malaria and, and, and uh, infectious disease and things like that, all of a sudden the world is listening to him. He was always impressive, but now he's giving us information that we were saying, we need this. This is really helpful. How do we solve? How do you, he's helping us solve a problem. And it always felt like Steve Jobs was doing that, that he was, he was saying, hey, we're, we're here for you. And, and we are helping your life become better uh, through our products. And so we listened to what he was saying, not because he was so impressive, even though he was, but it really felt like he was, he was helpful and authentic in the way that he was presenting. And, and that's, 
that's the kind of attitude we want to bring onto the stage. The ironic thing is people find that impressive. People find people who think about them and help them uh, to be impressive. And, and so if we can bring that to our audience, whether that's two of our coworkers or a thousand people at a conference, uh, that's, that's the best thing I think we can bring to the stage. That's also the, the amazing thing, which I imagine about your work, is that public speaking isn't just getting in front of like a massive audience, you know, like public speaking is talking to another person one on one. You know, it's like it's it's how you communicate the way that you that you tell your partner, your friend, whoever. And 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 the words that you say, the way that you say it, everything is communication. So so it's super fascinating. So in that question, what is what is the biggest challenge when it comes to teaching and guiding people to communicate more effectively? That's a good question. And I think it, it really depends in some ways on the on the individual. But clarity Clarity is is such a challenging thing in our world. And one of my favorite public speaking quotes is uh, is by a guy named uh, Kent Edwards, Dr. Kent Edwards. And he says that any anybody can be complex, but it takes a genius to be simple. And what he means by that is that clarity is a really difficult thing. And clarity looks very easy because it appears simple. But good clarity is not simplistic. Good clarity is not simplistic. It is, it is, uh, but it is simple. It's simple to hear and it's simple to understand and it's simple to apply. And perhaps the TED Talk platform is, is, the, is the most well-known format for really forcing people to be clear in what they're trying to say. So when someone gives an 18-minute TED Talk and they stand up on that stage, they are condensing a lifetime of work into those 18 minutes. And they have to be clear. They can't stand up there and give the normal lecture that they give. Here's the 45 things I've learned about psychology in my career. And those kind of lists, those kind of lists, like 15 things to know about your life or 10 things to, to learn about teaching or whatever it is, those kind of lists make great clickbait and they make terrible presentations. They, they are the BuzzFeed list that we all we all click on and we read 15 things and then we forget all 15 things. And when you are presenting and you get up in front of people and you say, hey, here's the 10 things I want you to know about my research. I work with a lot of scientists. So when scientists get up there and, and they say, hey, I do this research on this very particular uh, cell or, or compound or whatever it happens to be, and they say, here's the 45 things I've learned in my research, everybody's eyes glaze over and they're all scientists in the audience. But, but they don't want to hear 45 things that you've learned, right? They want to hear something helpful and clear about how your research can help their lives. And so that fight for clarity, what that means is you have to create the 45 things and then you have to do the hard work that nobody does. The hard work of eliminating ideas, generating ideas and eliminating ideas. A quote I often use is from the jazz musician Dizzy Gillespie. And Dizzy Gillespie said, It took him an entire lifetime of playing jazz music to learn which notes not to play. And the best speakers know what not to say. In the TED Talk format, what happens is, is I'll continue to use the psychologist who has 45 things that they've learned throughout a lifetime of research. They only have 18 minutes. So they have to say to themselves, I have 45 things that I've learned, but what is the one thing? that I can say in these 18 minutes that will be most helpful to the audience. 
And that's the work that we don't do normally in our presentations. We're just, we just, we just generate ideas. Oh, generate ideas. What can I say? What can I say? What can I say? What can I say? Now I have 35 slides. They're all cluttered with ideas. I'm just going to go, uh, you know, like opening up a fire hydrant and, and telling the audience to take a drink. I'm just now going to go share all 35 of these slides with every last detail of everything I've ever learned. And everybody shuts down. Nobody listens. No one retains anything. The, the thing that I would, I, that is so hard in our communication today is to help people do the hard work of, of finding clarity. So you have this long list of things that you've learned. That's great. You have the ability in your presentation, whether it's five minutes long or an hour long, to give people two or three key ideas that they can take away. I don't know if we want to get into it, but that's what the, that's what the research shows about the human brain. There are two or three ideas that the human brain can hold on to. You give the human brain more than that in a short amount of time and our short-term memory, our working memory literally gets overloaded and shuts down. So you can only give people two or three ideas, even if your presentation is an hour long. The hard work is to say, rather than try and, and just, you know, fi- fire hose everyone with all my ideas, what are the two or three key ideas that I actually want them to remember and will be most helpful to them? So if I can help the presenter do that hard work, I feel like that's the, the gift I guess I can give them is the ability to think through a presentation and their communication in such a way that they are walking up there saying, here's the two ideas I want to say today, rather than here's the 20 ideas I want to say today. Right. I just, and hearing you speak um, throughout this whole conversation, I realize there is another skill. I'm pretty sure there is, there are many skills to public speaking that we're not touching upon, but there is a skill that really is fascinating to me and you exhibit it very well. And that's the ability to pull from different media, to pull from different experiences and books and quotes to get your point across. And I, I find that very, very, very compelling. And it's such an amazing way to, to communicate. I'm, I'm wondering how, if somebody's trying to better that skill, how, or what do you think would be the best way to approach that? Because I think it can be very overwhelming when you put in the storytelling aspect where I have to know everything in order to be, to be able to pull from all of these, um, from all of this content for this exact conversation. I don't know if my question makes sense. This, that was the best way that I could form it. So let me know if I need to clarify. So here's the, I'll, t- I'll tell you, Christina, the way that I look at it. And, and hopefully this is, this is helpful. See, I think that pressure that you're feeling to know everything and read every book that's out there, let's say, and have every experience so that you can draw from it. I think I, I would encourage you to look at it a, a different way. When I have my key ideas for a presentation, uh, I have point number one, my key idea. The question I ask myself is how can I anchor this idea into something that my listeners already understand? And I'll give you an example. So what happens with our working memory, with our short-term memory is the studies often show that we can handle three to five pieces of information. That's they vary a little bit. I would suggest that in our world, it's more like two or three because the world has changed so much that we're so uh, much busier. 
and there's so much information in our world that our brains can really hold on to two to three pieces of information. What I try to do is I say, okay, which two to three pieces of information do I want my audience to take away from this particular talk or presentation? And then secondly, how can I anchor those ideas to something they already know? It works kind of like Velcro. There's a guy named Tim Pollard, who I love, um, an author and, and thinker around public speaking. And he says that our, our ideas need to be attached to something in the mind of, of, that people already know. Otherwise, they're going to float away. And he equates it to Velcro. He says, you know, Velcro has hooks and it has loops. And the, there's these loops in people's brains of things they already know and remember. And our ideas have little hooks in the And what we're trying to do is hook our ideas to something that's already in the person's brain. So that's why I use someone like Steve Jobs as an example a lot, because many of us know Steve Jobs. And I'm trying to hook my idea to something that's already in your brain with what Steve Jobs has done or said. Or I'll talk about the experience that we all have standing up on stage nervous before a presentation. Because that's something we all experience. And I'm trying to hook my idea to what's already in your brain, that feeling that you have before you hop up on stage and give a presentation. And so if we can take information and hook it to someone's something that people already know, they're going to remember it. I'll put it another way. And I don't know if this will this will make as much sense or if you'll be as as passionate about this example as I am. But if you when someone tells you their phone number, What's, what's the first thing that you do? Someone tells you their 10-digit uh, phone number. What's, what's the first thing that you do? Just out of curiosity. Well, it depends. Do I have my phone with me or do I not? Because I'll try to input it as soon as possible. If not, I try to repeat it in my head until I can get to either a pen or to my phone. Right. So the question is, why is it so difficult to remember 10 simple numbers in a particular order? You think about the power of the human brain. It seems like 10 one-digit numbers in a, in a particular order that our brains could very easily retain that information. But I'm the same way. If you told me your phone number was 707-193 or 194-9597, 707-194-9597, I would have to run to my phone and put that in my phone immediately. I would never remember that. Uh, I would never recall that. If I didn't write that down, those numbers would be gone. Now, if you knew me and you knew that I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, and you knew that I loved Nebraska Cornhusker football, right? And you told me that your phone number was the same years that Nebraska had won the national championship in football. I would say, oh, your phone number is 70, 71, 94, 95, 97. And I would never forget it, right? Because that information is in my brain. I will never forget those years. Uh, those those are my favorite years because my favorite team won the national championship in those years. So if if you could if you could attach your phone number to numbers that are already implanted in my mind, I'll never forget your phone number. Does that make sense? And so with my ideas, I'm trying to say, what does my audience already know? What is implant? What common experience do we have, or what common person do we know? What what's a quote that would? And then I'm I'm just I'm I'm just attaching it to that experience. So this is a long answer, Christina. I apologize. But the, the burden that you feel to know everything so that you can impress the audience is different in my mind than saying, okay, here's my key idea. Now, what do, what do my audience and I already have in common? Like, what do we all know? What did we all experience? It could be a song. It could be a movie. It could be that I can attach this piece of information to so that we walk away and we never forget it. 
Mm-hmm. It's fascinating because I it makes me think that when I have built professional presentations, um, of course not for your class, before when I did not know. <laughs> when it, well, Usually what people think is that, what, what do I have to say? What do I want to communicate? Not what do people need to listen? What what can I offer them? Man, it's not about us. And, and it's crazy because it's also that I've been getting involved lately with, with songwriting. It's also about that. It's not, it doesn't matter what I want. It's what people want to listen to. It's what people need to hear it's what can they win and how can they benefit so it's economics at the end of the day it's how what are people going to buy what are people going to listen to how are they going to get the attention that benefits them so it's it's a great way to look at it one last thing that we wanted to touch upon you mentioned a couple of times during um, this conversation that you're a pastor a pastor at mountain hope church you obtained a master of divinity at the theological seminary um what was your main drive behind that decision yeah i think i think for me faith has always been something that's been a part of my life and something that's been important to me and the opportunity. So public speaking is a big part of of being a, a pastor at a church. And there's a lot of aspects to that. But for me personally, the the public speaking aspect of that, the preaching aspect, the idea of of going and learning something or studying something in the Bible and trying to make it helpful to people's lives. Like that's the that's the part that always was appealing to me and the part that I really felt and do feel called to do. And so there's a lot of overlap between that and any presentation that we give. But for me, uh, because faith has always been important to me and an important part of my life, the opportunity to then go and on a regular basis, try to communicate ideas around faith, communicate ideas um, uh, from the Bible to a group of people is, is really what I've been drawn to and what I enjoy doing. And I think in our world, uh, generally speaking, Quite a few people feel like faith and the Bible don't have much to say to us anymore. And I disagree with that. I think that I think that unfortunately a few things have overshadowed some really important things. And so people have stopped listening in general. And so the I I really enjoy the opportunity to try and work against stereotypes a little bit or or work against the way that people have have assumed that that church is or that faith is or that the Bible is uh, and and communicate it in a new way where they might walk away and say, oh, this this actually is really helpful. There, there is something valuable here and something that that I need in my life. And so the the work of being a pastor, the idea of communicating those ideas, the idea of studying and then stepping up on a on a platform on Sunday mornings and and trying to say things in a way that is helpful to the people that are gathered there or today, the people that are watching online, uh, is, is something that, that I've been drawn to. And that's, that's really why I went into it. And that's, that's really what I enjoy doing week to week. Yeah, I, that's super interesting also because that was going to be something that I, I was going to ask you of how the two identities merge really of, of doing public speaking and, and then doing it at, at a, a spiritual level as a pastor. And I think the fascinating thing also about you is that I, 
both Chris and I got to got to attend church where you pastor at Mountain Hope once when we were still in college. And it was just like I was like I was in your class, but now you were just speaking about God, you know, <laughs> and it's like there really it wasn't much difference. And and I love that because we have a, such a, or I have a speak for myself, a, this perception of uh, pastors are this whole another human being that are like super not relatable. And they're like, they're not a professor and a pastor. I have never even how you know <laughs> so it is crazy because it's it also just speaks to to who you are as a person of, of just motivating people inside of the classroom and outside of the classroom and in church and outside of church and and the whole idea of, of serving others and helping them grow mentally and professionally and spiritually well i appreciate saying that because i i do try to be the same person regardless of the situation and I think that's important. That's a, I heard you, I heard you both speak about that earlier. It's important to me as well. I think we get really good in our world of trying to be chameleons and changing who we are based on the environment we're in. But I think authenticity is important. And I, another way I really look at speaking, whether that's in the classroom or in the church is I'm trying to give the audience a gift that they'll appreciate. And I, for much of my life, have have been a terrible gift giver. I'm, I'm not happy to admit that, but that's true. I, I would watch other people. They open when a, someone gives a great gift. There's like tears and hugs and smiles and and we, we all have that experience, right? Of opening up a gift, and it's like the person just we didn't even know we needed it, but they knew us so well that they got us exactly what we needed. And it's, sometimes it's something we didn't even ask for, but they just know us so well and they know how we are and, and they just saw this and they knew it was perfect for us. It took me a lot of years to realize that the reason people opened up my gifts and just kind of like half smiled <laughs> and, and weren't excited is because I was seeing things that I thought were great and giving them to other people. And assuming that if I thought it was great, like if I thought this was a great thing, or I thought this looked nice, that they would open it and that they would think it looked nice, or they would think it was great. And it doesn't work that way, right? And, and so once I, once I understood that a good gift is about thinking about the other person, and it doesn't matter whether I like it or not, it matters whether they like it. I can bring that into how I present either in the church or in the classroom and I, or in the, or in the business world. And I would say, okay, this is the group of people in front of me. It doesn't matter what I like about my content and what I know. It matters. I need to give, I'm trying to give a good gift here to them. And so what is the piece of the content that I have? It's not about dumbing my stuff down. It's not about making it overly simplistic. It's not about changing what I know. It's not about being inauthentic. It's about caring about enough, another person enough to say, this is what I know, which part of it is helpful to them, and then giving them that gift. And so it's encouraging to me that you felt that way in the classroom and in the church, because obviously the content is much different. Uh, I don't bring what I say in church into the classroom. Uh, and so, And so it's... But that's my mentality, regardless of where I am. How do I take a piece of, of, of my content and, and, and truly give it as a gift to this group so that, so that they hear it and they're excited? Most of us, most of us we're, when we uh, speak, we are just giving people the things we think are interesting. And it's like giving a bad gift. They just want to return it. They don't care. Uh, they don't want it. 
And, and we have to stop giving the things we think are interesting and start giving the things other people think are interesting. Mm -hmm. And just a quick comment on that, how that involves listening, you know, it's how, what other way do you learn from, from your audience or from the people that you're giving them, they give them by listening, you know, so that idea super important because we've been speaking a lot about what I have to say with the words, but also how you have to sit down and just listen to figure out what you have to say. How oh, that's critical for, for communication. How long have you been a pastor? It has been uh, 15 years now that I've been a pastor in some capacity Uh, all, all at, at Mount Hope, um, there's two locations in the Boston area. So I was at one for a long time. And then five years ago, we launched a new location. That's the one that, that you both came to uh, a few years ago. So about 15 years total. I wanted to make a quick comment about your gift analogy. And it's something that I've noticed in the way that you speak about the work that you do. Um, just being outwardly focused and understanding with what people would like from you in a way that it's authentic. But I also think there's a humility there. There's a kind of smothering of the ego to say, hey, this is not about me. This is not about what I want. It's about what other people want. So that's that's beautiful. I also wanted to ask about your calling. You mentioned that faith has been a big aspect of your life. Um, and when you were growing up, was the calling to become a pastor, something that you fought or something that you welcomed with open arms? So what happened was, is between my junior and senior year of high school, I would say the way I would say it is I would say that I felt like God did some significant work in my life during that, that summer. And I went to a fairly large church um, in, in the Midwest section of the, of, of the U.S. and in, in the Omaha area. And when I came back that fall to our youth group, the youth pastor, I think, noticed a difference in me and noticed that I was a different person uh, through some of the experiences that I had had throughout the summer. And he asked me to if I would speak at a youth meeting that we were having. And there was about 300 students at this gathering, 300 high school students, 300 of my peers. And I was, as we were talking about earlier, I remember this moment and I remember being super nervous and not sure that I wanted to do this. And um, when I got up there and began to speak and all I did was really share about my experiences throughout the summer, it was honestly, an experience where I felt like God was saying to me, I made you to do this in that moment. And I remember it so clearly, like you're doing exactly what I made you to do. And when I got done, my youth pastor called me into his office and he said, um, I think you need to think about doing this more. Like, I think he was surprised. I don't think he thought uh, it was going to go that well. I didn't think it was going to go that well. And he, he, I remember he was like, you actually might be called to do this full time. And I was in my head, I was like, I was thinking the same thing. And after that moment, I, that was my path. And, and so I think afterwards, there's been moments certainly throughout the years where I've thought, oh, why did I choose to do this? <laughs> you know, there's good days and bad days. But from that moment, from that moment of, of that experience, I wouldn't say that I really fought it. I felt like that was my path. So where I went to undergrad, where I went to graduate school uh, was all focused on that end goal after that moment. Wow. And super young age, that's 
That's so admirable. Um, okay, we are going to begin to wrap up. We ask all of our guest speakers these last few questions. The first one is, what is one habit that you have that keeps you goal-oriented or focused on your goal, whichever goal it may be? So every morning, I try to read for 15 minutes and write for 15 minutes. Whether it's it's whether I get a lot out of the reading that morning because of everything that's happening, or even if the writing is terrible, <laughs> which it often <laughs> is, it's it's about the for me the discipline of keeping it going. And so I would say for me, those two things really help continue forward momentum in where I want to be and and what I want to do. So. Uh, if I had to point to one thing, I would say that practice of reading for 15 minutes and writing for 15 minutes every morning is is super helpful in keeping me focused moving forward. That's awesome. And obviously, that takes a lot of discipline. I think some days I want to do that, but life has different plans. But it's just a matter of taking control of that. That's amazing. Uh, for the second question, what we do is at We're Focused is we highlight the five of the eight dimensions of wellness. So social, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. So with that in mind, which of those five dimensions do you find that you have the most challenges with? It's hmm. a good question. I think for me, the, the biggest challenge is the emotional uh, peace and the emotional health throughout, um, throughout everything. And I'm, I'm very driven by the idea of success and being successful. And if I'm not careful, I will sacrifice my emotional well-being to try to take on more work and produce content or not sleep because I feel like I'm doing something that will make me successful. I think one of the things I've had to learn is that you cannot be truly successful if your emotional health is not in the right place. And so the idea of slowing down and sleeping well and creating space just to just to be and and not to tie my my ego or my self-worth, I suppose, to what whatever metric I've put in place that equals success because our metrics are so crazy and, and arbitrary has been has been an important thing for me over the last few years. Uh, and so for me, it's the emotional piece. And, and that's kind of at the bottom of the pyramid for me that, that all those other things you're talking about, all those other aspects, if I'm not emotionally healthy, those other things start to fall apart. If I'm emotionally healthy, all those other things are falling in place. I think that's beautifully said. I, we forget that these dimensions are in kind of a vacuum or in a situation where there's a conservation of energy happening, right? If you neglect one to try to put all your energy into another, mm -hmm. then you'll, you'll be out of balance. So I, it, it is very healthy to realize that your emotional health is is taking a toll. So there is self-reflection there. Mm -hmm. And with the last question to end us off is what has been keeping your attention lately? What has been keeping my attention lately? Uh, honestly, my family and my children throughout this time have gotten so much more attention. And I think it's been such a healthy thing 
if I could say for me, one thing that's been a real positive from this whole COVID time, it is the fact that I have spent more time with my children over the last seven months than I have spent. Um, I don't know if I would say all the all the other years combined, but a lot of years combined. We've had more family dinners than ever before, home cooked meals than ever before, because we were always running around like crazy. And I'm taking them to like later today. I'll take my son to his flag football. Uh, practice and and involved in their lives in a way that I wasn't before, and that has captured a lot of my attention in a good way over the last few months. And the fact that there's no more commuting right now, and there's no more sitting in traffic, has opened up hours of time to invest in those relationships. And that so that has been taking a lot of my attention in a in a good way over the last seven months. That's something that I that I don't want to go back to the way it was. Uh, when this is all over, I hadn't I hadn't thought about it like that. It's like the things that are that are good, and then when things go back to whatever normal looks like, whenever it does, if it does, it, <laughs> how that's going to be impacted. But um, I'm glad you are you are benefiting out of out of a global pandemic. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I I honestly think we have it. We get to ask ourselves a couple of unique mm -hmm. questions right now that we don't normally get to ask, and that is. What was I doing before that I never want to do again? Mm -hmm. Because I I never want to spend the amount of time commuting that I was spending before, right? So what do I want to do before that I never want to do again? And what am I doing now that I that I don't want to stop? I think those are two questions that that I mean most people in their entire lives don't get a reset button mm, like we're exactly. we're getting right now. And so that's a way to look at it. I know everything's come to a screeching halt, but it's also an opportunity to change mm -hmm. some things that we would never change if life just continued the way mm -hmm. it was going. Mm -hmm. Well, this conversation has been tremendously eye-opening and, and motivating. So thank you for the work you're doing and, and for leading change by example and for being so transparent. Even as we hear you speak, it's like we're still having you in person. So we're honored to be able to have this <laughs> chat with you on Refocus and sincerely hope that greatness continues to flow your way and everybody's still listening. That goes to you too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Christina and Barbara for having me. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Bye bye. Thank you so much. Welcome back. <laughs> okay. <laughs>